This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Recently, a new law came into being that's supposed to better back up people who blow the whistle on wrongdoing where they work, but not if they do it via the media, where plenty of people will hear. And the media didn't fight for the right. Why, and does it matter? We ask an expert. Also, two of our biggest cities are slowing down speed on their streets, and the ranker on the radio about that's revving up. Any council that supports this, I'm just going to get out my little marker. I'm going to get your faces. I'm going to scratch, 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 scratch. But first, we look at a major miscarriage of justice that hit the headlines this week. Here we are, final moments, and uh, we got a got what we needed for Helen and for the family and for everybody, really. I mean, this is not just a, a win for us, it's a win for the nation. That was Jeff Hall speaking to reporters on Wednesday once it was official that the Supreme Court had cleared his brother Alan, quashing his conviction for the murder of Arthur Easton in Papakura back in 1985. Alan was 23 when he was first arrested for that, and now he's been cleared at the age of 60. But Wednesday's news wasn't a surprise for those who knew about the case and the problems with it. Two days before, the Crown admitted that Hall shouldn't have been convicted because police had hidden vital evidence from the defence years ago before the trial. And the Crown had already admitted back in April, in submissions to the Queen against Alan Russell Hall, that this was a trial gone wrong. And this was the verdict Alan Hall's lawyer Nick Chisnell gave to News Hub outside the court on Wednesday. Miscarriage of justice is a miscarriage of justice, but I've never seen as clear-cut a case in my career as this one. Police and Crown Law have both launched their own reviews now into the investigation and the court case respectively. And in an article about the case in the Listener magazine last month, lawyer Nick Chisnell also said, it's hard to get a case over the line where a miscarriage of justice is so obvious. But how could that be, with not just lawyers on the case for years, but also investigators like Tim McKinnell, a former police inspector and an expert in wrongful convictions, and investigative journalists like Phil Taylor, who wrote that listener article, and several others from 2011 onwards when he worked for the New Zealand Herald. Now back then, Phil Taylor reported on a key piece of evidence, a statement from a passing motorist, parts of which would have cast doubt on Hall's involvement if they hadn't been withheld. And he notes that this and other serious doubts were also aired in a podcast back in 2018. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. Although it was an ugly sort of weapon, it didn't look as though it did do you any mischief. And this series not only put new evidence and flaws about the existing evidence back into the spotlight, it also drew Tim McKinnell to the case. But when making the podcast, Mike Wesley-Smith also credited the crucial record-keeping and campaigning stamina of Alan Hall's family, who gave him a lot to go on. This is a, a book that the family kept next to the family telephone. It's information about suspects, um, suspicious cars, names, phone numbers, witness statements, every press um, clipping. Rather extraordinary letter written by Alan's brother to David Longy when he was Prime Minister. Seeing all of this in front of me, it's quite daunting. Um, you realise that 33 years of hard work has been put in already to this case. But is this week's Supreme Court decision a vindication of the investigative journalism into Alan Hall's case, or is it really an illustration of its limits? Because it still took so long for the right result to be reached in court this week. You know, I'm really proud of the work that um, the team I was part of uh, did on Alan's case, and that included my producer Maggie Wicks and our um, editor Asher Bastian. 
you know, without which none of that podcast would have been possible. And there does seem to be a pattern of um, some of New Zealand's worst miscarriages of justice involving a, um, an unlikely team journalist or journalists that kind of work in concert or at least alongside defendant or their legal team. And it's often that kind of um, joint pressure that is what's necessary to get these big um, or long-standing problematic convictions overturned. Yes, I mean, you did a whole eight-part series on this back in 2018. Uh, Phil Taylor, uh, when he was at the New Zealand Herald, was writing about this case more than 10 years ago. Brian Bruce, um, the television documentary maker, he featured that in a series back in 2009, concluded one of the first cases he examined where he was sure uh, the person was innocent. Even Pat Booth, who helped expose the miscarriage of justice uh, that befell Arthur Allen Thomas, they all raised concerns about this. Indeed, in your series, you have Brian Edwards on Radio Pacific 30 years ago uh, talking about the case and the problems with it. Does it actually show, you know, the limits of the media that it took so long to get the right result, even though there, there were so many journalists who down the years did dedicate a lot of time to it? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I, you know, when I came across um, that, that old radio program and Brian had on the same program, um, Arthur Allen Thomas's father, I believe, you know, this convergence of these two cases was, it was just really extraordinary audio. One of the most enduring mysteries about Allen's case is how obvious the problem with it was. Um, you know, it never was at the time back in 1985, nor is it now, ever been okay for a prosecutor or a defence lawyer to just unilaterally change a witness's statement because they don't believe a certain material aspect is reliable. And so I think that's why so many journalists were drawn to the case because it just seemed, what was wrong with it just seemed so obvious. Nick Chisnell, the lawyer, told Phil Taylor in the Listener article published last month, um, it's my feeling that it's hard to get a case over the line where a miscarriage of justice is so obvious. That sounds just so counterintuitive to me from the outside oh look absolutely and it's not that hard to find the reporting down the years on Ellen's case which almost always have focused on you know the central problems with it which was quite rightly the focus of the supreme court hearing from a media perspective what it's revealed to me is that all of these institutions um the prosecutors the police the ministry of justice who administer our prerogative of mercy application they all consume media too. They have communications teams who are constantly looking at what the media is reporting on. But what it shows is that it doesn't seem that any of those institutions or the people within them who consume those news reports ever thought that actually what was being reported might be something that they should act on. And no one ever in those institutions thinking, wow, is there anything that we could do about this? And I was, yeah, flummox as to why um, it didn't animate those institutions in the way it did journalists and, and other observers. Well, investigative reporter Mike White has spent a lot of time on wrongful conviction cases. He's even written guidelines for other journalists to help them uh, embark upon um, projects like this. And I remember him telling me, look, these are cases, these are journalistic projects like no other, and you really have to stop and think before you decide to go all in on them, because you worry that you might end up just kind of amplifying doubts about it. Uh, was that something that you had to think about before you went um, all in on this case? For sure. I mean, I have a lot of um, respect for Mike and, and like with Phil Taylor, you know, his reporting was always provided a really useful template for journalists like me, you know, junior, more junior journalists as to how to approach 
these type of cases and to do it responsibly. And you obviously want to, as much as possible, stick to that middle lane as, of impartial journalism, not descend into being an unquestioning advocate for one side or the other. The, the safest way I could orientate myself in that direction was to focus on the fairness of Alan's trial, which is um, something that should be a shared concern for both the prosecution and the defence and the judiciary and the public. You know, everyone um, wants those processes to work the way that they're designed to work. And in trying to convince people, you know, ex-police officers, lawyers to talk to me, I made that I wanted to make that clear that I wasn't here at the behest of Alan or his family. And in fact, in the podcast, you know, I reported on evidence that pointed towards him to be genuine about that, to help make sure that I, I stayed within the, the proper lanes of, of, a, of a journalist approaching a case like this. One of the interesting things about your podcast series is the process being on show, which I guess is one of the benefits of that podcast format rather than the kind of definitive documentary or, you know, feature article in print. But at one point, you even said that it literally made you feel ill to have to question police officers. I think what probably caused me the most anxiety, um, Colin, was knowing that going down this road would cause some level of distress to Arthur Eason's family. I was always struck by the um, respectful letters I had back. That was how we communicated. And not to give a, a definitive view either way, but simply say, look, you know, this was a terribly traumatic episode in our life it remains so and we placed our trust in the criminal justice system and that was the process that we that they you know thought should should determine this one way or the other that probably is what weighed on me most at the end of the day um, one has to do an exercise like this without fear or favor in, in the end I chose to do what I did mm, indeed and another thing Mike White said I remember is that often the people that are suffering miscarriages of justice and, and this is unrelated to the case of um, Alan Hall in particular, but often people in this position are imperfect people. Um, you know, and the way he put it, I think was not not often uh, natural candidates for sympathy. Um, uh, was that a, a problem for you? Because I mean, it it is almost impossible not to have sympathy for um, Alan's situation. You know, given the, the disadvantages he had in the process right from the start. It, Mike is completely right. It, it is a very common feature of people who are the. Um, victims of miscarriages like this, not just in New Zealand, but I think worldwide, that they tend to have something about them that is inherently vulnerable, but also they are maybe at the periphery of society in terms of those where they're just completely swept away by the justice system. And, you know, if they ever, you know, are able to climb, you know, clamber out of that powerful tide. I mean, the thing about Alan's family is just how, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but just how ordinary they were. Alan and his brothers, when they were first questioned by police, you know, they didn't clamber to have a lawyer because they didn't have any reason to believe that the police would act in any, you know, in any way. But honestly, that, that, that question of trust is common to both the Hall and the Eastern family, you know, that both of them, you know, have said that how that trust was so fundamentally betrayed. But, but I wonder, we do have a Criminal Cases Review Commission uh, it, it has had a lot of applications uh, since it was set up. But is this something where the media can actually play a role? Maybe reporters dedicated to following the cases passing through that commission just bring those cases to public attention uh, so that when there are outcomes like this, you know, people can't say they were surprised and, you know, they'll know all about it. 
the Criminal Cases Review Commission was a fantastic addition to the New Zealand justice system. Um, in England, they've had one for going on probably 25, 30 years. But I will forever be of the view that there will always be a place um, for um, journalists in that watchdog capacity because how, however many checks, I think, you, institutional checks you put in place, I just don't think it will ever capture all of those cases that um, need to be kind of brought to light. And there's something about, you know, the freedom with which uh, a journalist, given enough time by their bosses, has to just simply um, pursue the truth. Wherever that truth may take them, there will absolutely always be a need for journalists to be vigilant watchers of the court process. You know, there are so many fantastic journalists operating now, uh, like Mike White, like Phil Taylor, and, and many, many others that um, it gives me every confidence yeah, journalists will continue to play a really important role in bringing miscarriages of this uh, kind to light. Yeah, and especially maybe the ones that are taking too long to resolve, is there's a kind of inertia uh, and you know different stages where you know, appeals are failing and the process has to restart. If journalists are able to highlight those ones where, where they think there's a case and keep those alive, it might have an impact. And while we're on this, um, the podcast form is you know something that's obviously come up during the last 10 or 12 years or so it's become a form and there's a real public interest and appetite particularly in cold cases and true crime and so on at times it feels a little ghoulish to me but in this case where you know it has allowed you hasn't it an almost kind of open field to get an awful lot of detail about one case in a form that the public seem to um, be interested in that you might struggle if it was to be you know say one single documentary or a, or a long written piece that people may or may not read. Yeah, definitely. And look, you know, having simultaneously covered Alan's case in both a television format and an audio format, it's just it's just that bit less intrusive. So on that basis alone, it's it's such a, a, a useful medium to use for investigations of this kind. I I genuinely would not have done a podcast on Alan's case unless I thought from the outset I could it would do some actual good. To me, it wasn't enough that it was just simply telling Alan's story. Knowing that it would cause old wounds to be opened, I felt it brought with it a, a, an obligation to uncover new evidence. So, I mean, I know, you know, I'm conscious that there are podcasts out there and, and you know, they've just exploded in the last 10 years um, that will just cover a case for the sake of, of covering it. And it was really a, a really important precondition that I, um, knowing there would be a human cost, an emotional cost um, that against that I could balance an obligation or a reasonable belief that I could uncover new evidence, which fortunately we were able to do and and, and have some influence on, on bringing about the right, right conclusion. That was Mike Wesley-Smith, who produced and presented the podcast series Grove Road about the murder of Arthur Easton in 1985 and the flawed case against Alan Hall, whose conviction for it was finally quashed last Wednesday by the Supreme Court. Last weekend was Queen's Birthday weekend, a long weekend here and in the UK, where the Queen's Platinum Jubilee was wall-to-wall on TV, thanks to the BBC, which produced the event as well as the broadcast. And it also led the news here as well last weekend. Hello, my hearty my welcome to One News. The Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations have ramped up with a two-and-a-half-hour star-studded concert outside Buckingham Palace. 
but not there to see the show in person, the 96-year-old monarch herself who set out the concert and the following parade, though she did have a presence in it, sort of. So it's a hologram that's been created especially, Joanna. It's pretty cool, it's isn't fantastic. it? fantastic. And it's in black and white, which makes it even more sort of eerily thrilling in a funny way. And to think that the Queen, maybe at Windsor still, is sitting and seeing that. And while Joanna Lumley there thought that the waving hologram in the carriage was absolutely fabulous, that's what Newshub thought of the Queen's cameo with Paddington Bear. Thank you. Put everything. A fictional character reflecting the gratitude of the entire Commonwealth. Who knew Paddington served as a spokesperson for 50-plus Commonwealth countries. Now, as some people in the UK pointed out, it's a good job for Paddington that he is only fictional. Under the current UK law, as an illegal immigrant from Peru, he would be less likely to be having tea with the Queen and more likely to be lined up with a one-way ticket to Rwanda, where the first deportation flights are due to leave next week under the UK's new Safe Third Country scheme. I looked at all that and a profile of the National Party leader that caused a stir, on Midweek Media Watch this week with Brian Crump. If you missed it, that's in the Media Watch podcast feed or on our page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app. Yeah, I mean, the, the BBC had known about Savile for many years. I mean, there's stuff going back to 1973 where the head of Radio 1 and Radio 2, now dead, called him in, had him, you know, interrogated, realised, knew that he was bringing underage girls back to his flat overnight. They didn't even tell him to stop doing it. All they cared about was that it wasn't going to come out in the press. Last month, Kim Hill had a long and revealing conversation on RNZ National with British journalist Marion Jones, who made a startling documentary 10 years ago, revealing how Jimmy Savile had offended over the decades that he'd also been a British media superstar at the BBC. Initially, he and his colleague Liz McKean were making an expose for the BBC, making all this a huge act of whistleblowing, he told Kim Hill. Yeah, I was 100% in a whistleblower position. Uh, the BBC had covered up for Savile for 30 years. Now they were covering up that cover-up by refusing to put out our film, exposing him as who he was. Marion Jones' film was eventually aired by rival broadcaster ITV, kicking off a fresh police investigation after Savile died back in 2011. And he also features in the Netflix retrospective that's currently putting Savile back into the spotlight, a British horror story. So why were his life and crimes unreported till after he died? Well, Marion Jones told Kim Hill that it was partly because of libel laws, but also because whistleblowers were so vulnerable. Now, here in New Zealand, the Protected Disclosures Act was passed in the year 2000 to back up people blowing the whistle on misconduct at work if they had raised concerns with their employer first. And this month, it was replaced with a new act, the Protected Disclosures Protection of Whistleblowers Act 2022, which extends protection to those who go to an appropriate external authority. But anyone exposing wrongdoing to the media will have no extra protection at all. In Australia, some states protect workers who go to the media as a last resort. New South Wales, for example, protects those who haven't had success having what they call honest concerns properly investigated. And one of the cases that prompted a review of our law here in the first place was that of a security guard who did just that. Back in 2010, Lydia Moate, with the backing of her union, 
told the Dominion Post newspaper that her employer had encouraged staff to cheat in their training. But there was nothing that she, or the union, or the Employment Relations Authority, or the newspaper, could do about her subsequent sacking. So why don't the media also count as an appropriate authority under our brand new whistleblowing law? Well, back in 2018, the initial discussion document said that people could simply get it wrong, or worse, deliberately make a false claim, which could cause unfair reputational damage to the people involved in the public domain. And that fear was echoed by Business NZ in its submission. Providing protection would open the door to get-even complaints, they said, which, even if found to be untrue, would do harm on a no-smoke-without-fire basis. Now at that time, TVNZ's general counsel, Brent McAnulty, said that all this was based on an unfair assumption, that the media wouldn't investigate whistleblowers' claims before reporting them. He said compliance with broadcasting standards codes and the media council principles also helped to ensure accuracy and fairness, but his was the only media submission before the deadline and the select committee evidently wasn't persuaded by it. The bill that went through for the third reading recently was unchanged in that respect, and only one independent journalist, Jason Brown, argued the case for extending protection for the media in a submission that's publicly available. Debbie G is a former Radio New Zealand and TV3 reporter who's now a director of the local branch of the anti-corruption watchdog Transparency International. She's also the author of Taken for a Ride, a study of how Joanne Harrison defrauded the Ministry of Transport even after at least four colleagues blew the whistle but were ignored. So is Debbie G disappointed that the media aren't included in the new whistleblowing law and disappointed that the media didn't press for that? The question of um, protected disclosures to the media was specifically excluded from the consultation that was launched. So it's not really surprising that uh, there were so few um, submissions from media organisations because... They, they weren't being asked to. Well, back in 2018, at the start of the process, Business New Zealand argued that if protections were extended to people who, who go straight to the media, those people might exploit that to launch vexatious and unfounded complaints, just their grievances, you know, about their employers. Is that actually a fair point from them? Yes, it is a fair point from them. Uh, and there is this potential that people will not go through the other channels available to them before they go to the media. So our view is that people tend to go to the media because, A, they don't know where to go, B, they don't trust where they're supposed to go, and they've kind of reached the end of their tether. The objective is really to find ways for them to address their issues, their concerns, through means that would satisfy those requirements. So perhaps they wouldn't necessarily need to go to the media it's actually estimated only about 1% of whistleblowing uh, goes to the media anyway. The Joanne Harrison case, uh, fraud at the Ministry of Transport. Now, they, there the reporting only hit the headlines you know, when it was effectively too late. Um, you noted that when Harrison's offences became public knowledge, there were four former staff members alleged in the media that they'd made attempts to raise concerns about her behaviour and they hadn't been properly investigated. Had they had the opportunity to go to the media as well as making what turned out to be ineffective internal disclosures, that we could have had a better result as far as the public's concerned? I think it's a case for having some other mechanism than internal reporting available to them, not necessarily the media. In fact, a lot of people who 
want to raise issues, would love to have another but also confidential means or channel to, to, in which to raise those uh, concerns. So if there was, say, you know, some form of, I don't know, ombudsman or central agency that was responsible for these things, many people would feel more comfortable taking it there. It's also important to note that at the time these concerns were raised at the Ministry of Transport, there was no actual evidence of, of fraud per se. What there was evidence of was repeated failures to follow clear procedures and policies in relation to contracting and procurement, which raised f- red flags with some people, and, they, and only one of them actually made a true protected disclosure about that. Others raised it through other means like internal audits. And I somehow doubt they would have gone to the media uh, before it became public. It was already in, in the courts when they mentioned that they'd tried to raise this earlier and had been ignored. These people were only willing to come forward after they'd left the Ministry of Transport, come forward to the media, that is, and felt that their concerns had not only been ignored, but in some cases had led to their premature departure from the from the organisation. Well, you mentioned there, Debbie, that it's pretty rare for uh, people to uh, go outside of their organisation to blow the whistle uh, in the first place. Uh, and indeed, the Clean as a Whistle report on whistleblowing back in, I think, 2019, found 2% of people went outside uh, the organisation in the first instance, according to that report. Does that mean there wouldn't actually be any point in extending whistleblower protections to uh, people who tip off the media? Both Australia and Canada have mechanisms to protect uh, disclosures under very stringent circumstances if they do go to the media. So something that should be looked at in future. But before we get to that point, there are a lot of shortcomings in the new legislation that Transparency International New Zealand would probably rather see um, addressed before the media side of things. Although if there was a second round of review, perhaps it could be included there. But there are there are other areas where we think the, the new legislation is deficient. Well, that Clean as a Whistle report also uh, noted that the effectiveness of public whistleblower protections has been directly undermined by recent evidence to the extent to which journalists and media organisations can still be forced to reveal information about their confidential sources. Just quoting from the report here, so as to jeopardise those sources, indeed, that they themselves could be targeted for receiving and publishing information uh, from those sources. Now, this is a bit of a worry, I think, for journalists, because we have had cases in recent years where media organisations have been searched by police and individual journalists uh, subjected to police investigations. Do you think whistleblowers possibly fear the media just can't or won't protect their identity and that might explain why so few go to the media in the first place? I think that could definitely be a component of it. Many of them are doing it out of a sense of loyalty to the organisation they work for and to their colleagues. They don't want to necessarily put the reputation of the organisation they work for and and therefore the people they work with into the public spotlight. But they do want some action taken. Uh, Most of them didn't want to have to go to the media to do that. Do you think after this whole process, which I think has lasted almost four years now, we are better protected and uh, public life is improved by uh, the changes to the new law? This was a, a law that was 20 years old and this was a chance to give it a really thorough going over and to put some really much strengthened um, procedures in place, whether or not that included the media. And yes, it's been improved 
lightly in some areas, but it, it just doesn't go nearly far enough, particularly in terms of the support for the well-being of people who want to make protected disclosures. You know, the Ombudsman has been asked to do some further work on, on things that could be put in place. So uh, perhaps it was the pressures of COVID, uh, whatever it was, that this bill was, was simply um, watered down, really. Along with the procedures for reporting protected disclosures, a really important thing that goes along with this is the culture of an organisation, a culture that makes the processes clear, a culture that wants to hear people's concerns and encourages them to report internally so that things can be addressed and and improved. So it's not something that legislation can do, but there is a whole other area of work that needs to be done culturally. Well, it's entirely coincidental, Debbie, but right now there are um, you know, questions being asked uh, of the media organisation itself at Television New Zealand and uh, the possibility of uh, misconduct of, of one of its um, star hosts who's resigned now with allegations about his personal conduct and that this could have been going on at the broadcaster overseas where he was working. We've seen Television New Zealand come under fire for the way that their executives you know, haven't, as so far, been willing to front up and answer questions in public, preferring to deal with this uh, in-house as much as they can. And parallels have been drawn with another broadcaster, MediaWorks, where uh, their chief executive, Cam Wallace, came into the job new and was confronted with allegations of harassment and bullying, uh, employed a QC to launch a review of the company's culture, as well as investigate specific instances. Uh, do you think that, that that approach is one if a company is really determined to confront it? Definitely we want to see more of, of that sort of approach to, to allegations of misconduct. And I was one thing we were pleased to see was that the definition of serious misconduct was expanded beyond just, I think it was uh, serious, uh, it wasn't exactly the word serious fraud, but, but it was serious criminal activity was the original very narrow definition. So it has been expanded and we were pleased to see that. It's also interesting to note that this legislation really only applies to the New Zealand public sector and private or not-for-profit organisations that receive funding that way. So we thought that the reaction of some parts of the business community to the potential of having whistleblower legislation extended to them was kind of interesting, narrow in its, in its, in its vision. Um, some of them said that this would be uh, really difficult for um, public se- private sector organisations to implement. But in fact, if you were a private sector organisation and you really cared about your your culture, your people and your reputation, your brand, uh, you probably should be implementing such procedures voluntarily anyway. That's Debbie G, a former Radio New Zealand and TV3 reporter who's now a director at the anti-corruption watchdog Transparency International NZ. She's also the author of Taken for a Ride, a study of how Joanne Harrison defrauded the Ministry of Transport over four years when at least four colleagues were ignored when they blew the whistle. Safe speed limits on 800 Auckland roads come into effect between the 30th of June and the 28th of July. 30 kilometres per hour around schools protect children walking or biking to school. Safe speed limits protect the elderly and people shopping in town centres and cyclists and motorcyclists who share our roads. It's an advert produced by Auckland Transport that's been running on the radio a lot lately, reminding Aucklanders that new lower speed limits in city streets are coming up and why. 
Now, these were first proposed three years ago when local elections were coming up and those restrictions were a hot issue. Mayoral candidate John Tamahiri was actually forced to pull radio ads, which vastly overstated the scope and the impact of the plan and falsely claimed that the council was trying to force Aucklanders out of their cars. Well, this week, Wellington city councillors were due to vote on a plan to consult on similar cuts to speed limits around the capital. But the weather gods intervened last Thursday, cutting the power to the council building and forcing an adjournment. Oh my goodness, it is thunderlining. Um, colleagues, I know this is quite amazing, but if we can, if we, if we can just, we could adjourn the meeting. I think this just feels a bit. And in the capital, they were already primed by another story about cars just the week before. Work on a central Wellington cycleway has been put on hold to many businesses' delight. The High Court has granted an interim order to pause the construction of the bike network between Newtown and Courtney Place. Local business owner Miles Gasly says it's great news for Wellington City. We're very happy with the judge's decision. It gives us a lot of hope for the future. Miles Gaisley is the owner of one of four local car businesses who went to court to stop that cycleway. Now, the nation's leading commercial talk station, News Talk ZB, began harvesting the low-hanging fruit from this in a now pretty familiar way. Does anyone sit there and feel bad and go, actually, we might just have got this a bit wrong? Or are you so ideologically up your own backside you don't care anymore? And where Mike Hosking lays down the line in the mornings, his ZB drive-time colleague Heather Duplessy-Allen often follows. I'm so stoked to see that that cycleway's been stopped. Brilliant. Because obviously we only listen to certain parts of the community, don't we? That same day, Heather Duplessy-Allen spoke to the Wellington City Council Planning Committee Chief about this and that plan to cut speed limits in the capital. And Councillor Iona Pannett got a fair hearing in that interview. It's not about forcing them out of their cars because they get so frustrated and onto bikes instead, is it? <laughs> No, no. Of course we believe in personal choice and we know that some people will need to drive. And that all sounds reasonable. And remember, speed limits won't drop imminently in the capital. If at all, this is just a proposal to consult on the idea. But as is often the MO for HDPA on ZB, once the guest is off the line and unable to counter, she launched a whole range of fresh and highly contestable claims and criticisms. If you're going at 30 k's an hour, whether you're actually doing more damage to the climate, and I suspect you probably are, but lols, whatever, I don't care, I'll help them with that if they want. Now that's a tricky issue. It's the stop and start of city driving that increases fuel use and emissions rather than speed, but places with slower speed limits tend to have fewer traffic calming measures that make cars slow down and speed up repeatedly. But on road safety, Heather Duplessy-Allen reckoned that cars weren't the problem at all. What if you cast your mind back to collisions in Wellington seems to be the thing that takes out the pedestrians more frequently than anything else? Buses. Do I hear them wanting to get rid of buses on account of that? No. But the buses also travel slower in slower zone roads, and safety is, of course, more than just very rare cases of pedestrians being hit and killed by buses or cars. Now, these are things she could have put to the councillor Iona Panett, or she could have Googled it, but during an ad break after that, Heather Duplessy-Allen did Google councillor Iona Panett and discovered that she herself lives in the central Wellington ward that Panett represents, and she wasn't happy about that. And they just want to make your life worse by making it slow down, and you just wish that they could just get out of the blinking way. So I'm with you, actually, on that. I'm not a fan of it either, and any council that supports this, I'm just going to get out my little marker, I'm going to get your faces, I'm going to scratch, 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 scratch.
And Heather Duplessis-Allen went on to address those councillors directly like this. We're not going to be helping you on the show. We're going to be talking you down on account of this. So just think about that. Anyway, that's a threat. Is that a threat? Yes, that's a threat. Absolutely it is. Free expression of sincerely held opinions is part of the law, as well as the to and fro of talk radio. But it does matter for local elections and proposals that could change local life in important ways. And that's something Heather Duplessis-Allen apparently feels when it comes to housing density rule changes in the capital. She and her husband, fellow ZB broadcaster Barry Soper, joined their neighbours last year in Wellington's inner city Oriental Bay in challenging changes to the spatial plan, which might mean more dwellings and parking problems where they live. In October last year, they signed a submission address to Councillor Iona Panett, arguing that their street was too far from the city's edge to be walkable for their residents, and it would be discriminatory to expect them to walk further than residents in other closer inner suburbs. Now, you'd hope that they got a fair hearing on that from their councillors, just like you'd hope candidates for council elections could expect a fair hearing on News Talk ZB. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back again with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday on Lately with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.